the optimal life. Doctor, welcome to the show. <laughs> Good morning, Nate. It's great to be here. So how do you go from medical doctor looking to practice surgery to uh, what you're doing now in executive coaching? That's a very unique path. You know, I think that there is a lot of life that is more iterative than we sometimes think it is. And so, um, you know, Paul Graham had this essay that he it was a graduation speech that he didn't end up giving, but that talked about how as young people we should think about what we're doing. And when I look back, obviously, long before he wrote that, uh, there was a lot of just following what I was interested in. Um, you know, where did I feel strong? I felt, you know, strong in math and science. And, but I also was super interested in people. And I also really liked, uh, trying to do challenging things, like trying to figure out how to do it. Um, and no one in my family was a doctor and, um, you know, I think ultimately I was like, well, that is both interesting and challenging. So, um, like, let's go down that path. I know I will have a job. And, you know, as a young person, one of the things in my family, it was like, you need a job. So make sure that where, wherever you end up, uh, you know, you know how to take care of yourself. And so I think that is sort of how I ultimately got into studying medicine and um, really loved the applied science of it. So doing the the science study for the PhD, as well as thinking about how that would impact human beings. Um, but I think the other thing I was always thinking about, um, even particularly as I got into uh, sur the surgery path, was uh, thinking about human performance. And really, how is it that we do challenging, high stakes, uncertain things? How do we make decisions with imperfect data that will have consequences? And, um, you know, how is it that people do that? How do I do that? How do other people do that? And, you know, ultimately, uh, when I was practicing surgery, you know, pulling 80 hour, 100 hour weeks, I realized that, uh, number one, in my life, I, I loved having multiple channels. So I liked playing high level sports. I liked having ambitious, interesting work, but I also had a partner. And um, so uh, the first thought was, oh, this is a this is a single channel life and it will be very meaningful and challenging but I think I like having multiple things going on. And secondly, that I really wanted to think about and study performance more than like sort of surgery itself. I wanted to think about how do people do challenging things and is there science that can help us? And, you know, can you build a methodology to actually help people apply that? So yeah. that is, uh, you know, just, we could talk for an hour about that, but that's really... <laughs> Yeah. So how do you, how do you go then? How do you there. go then from practicing at the surgery center, um, Stanford University, to and again for everyone that anyone that doesn't know, and you can learn more about Carla at the link in, in the uh, description here, magna cum laude from Brown University. Then she goes on to get her MD and PhD at uh, University of Washington. And then you're practicing at Stanford. That's a that's a pretty nice list of of universities, but I'm I'm curious how you go from from that then to ultimately being able to convince other people, hey, I need to hire Carla to help me in the in the business world. Well, Nate, you are not alone in asking that question because I got asked that question a lot when I made that switch, and I can tell you, it's one of those things that I don't know that it was a popular decision, but. You know, I think there, when we think about any number of entrepreneurs who said, 
you know what? I'm going to quit my solid day job. Like, and I have this idea and I need to go pursue it. They get asked that question a lot as well. And so for me, I think I, I could see the topic that I was interested in, that I could be passionate about for a lifetime. I also knew that I had spent more years in high level, uh, very high performing environments, uh, both like in the academic realm, in the professional realm, and even in the athletic realm, that um, if you think about like wanting to put in 10,000 hours on a topic that I had been in the arena and thinking about this topic for a number of years before I'd even then said, I want to go into coaching. And so I think that was the first thing that internally I was really convinced of and kind of had that belief. Um, Harder to convey that externally. And so I did what I think any entrepreneur needs to do. Uh, You have to go out and you have to pitch. You need to sell your idea. You need to talk to people. You need to do a bunch of uncomfortable stuff where you feel like a beginner. Mm-hmm. You have to go back to being a beginner because in med school, you learn a lot of stuff, but they do not teach you how to open a business, how to run a business. It is humbling and um, and it can be uncomfortable and scary, but uh, there there weren't things that prepared me for the business elements I had to read, I had to learn, um, by doing and by, and, and by, you know, listening, talking to other people. But, um, I think there was a lot that did prepare me. Um, when you go into surgery for the first time as a med student or an intern and someone hands you like a scalpel and says, okay, cut here, you know, there's nothing (laughs) more uncomfortable than that. And so I think I drew upon a lot of those things to say, all right, you're a beginner again, but you've been a beginner at many things. And, um, and it's okay that you're 33 and you're beginning again. Right. Well, like, I find it very unique because doctors and salespeople are typically on very opposite sides of the spectrum. People that have <laughs> that kind of brain and that are going through medical school and that are practic- ultimately looking to practice medicine, they're not the best salespeople. Let's just call it what it is. They're introverted quite a bit. They have a unique way that they think about things. They don't necessarily know how to connect with other people. Their interpersonal skills it's not one of their greatest traits. So I find it very fascinating that you were able to do all that in the medicine and then become a salesperson at 33 years old. Cause you had to sell yourself to get this thing going. You absolutely have to sell yourself. Yes. Um, I think you're picking up on something that is, I I'm kind of a, a unique uh, combination of traits and that can be very useful when you want to explore new things and be adaptable it also can be a challenge to uh, belong in a particular tribe. So I think there are some ways in which I was a great fit for surgery. Uh, You know, I have, I have some uh, challenges with perfectionism, but in some ways we want our surgeons to be perfect. Uh, But um, you know, and, and intellectually, I like the rigor of surgery and, um, and the physical art of it, but also uh, I have a kind of a deep intuition for people and for the human experience. And that was actually sort of a unique piece, very helpful in connecting with people. I loved patient care. Um, I think I received a number of, uh, you know, comments from patients or people that I really helped through tough situations. On the other hand, um, I would say that there's a lot of challenges in the medical system 
that make time very pressed. There's often not, um, that's just not built into the system as it is. And so that also makes it hard to belong to that tribe when your mm-hmm. ideas or your values about what would be the highest level of performance of practicing something don't fit with the structure and or culturally are a little bit of a mismatch. Um, so you're, you're picking up on something that is very true. And um, I think that was a piece of what made me think that it might be better for me to build something that was my own and that really could encompass what I thought was possible versus trying to fit into a system that uh, I definitely had some traits that would really help me and some traits that just made it challenging to fit in. So you developed this, your method and your approach centers around this performance science, as you call it. Mm-hmm. You're taking, yes. you're, you're helping leaders elevate through their performance, but you're, I think, employing a scientific method. Take us through it. What is that exactly? Awesome. Great question. So performance science, um, I loosely think of it as all the ideas that we're generating from our business schools, through psychology, through sociological study, basically all the ideas that kind of inform how human beings do their best work. And um, particularly in those situations where there's uncertainty involved or uh, there's risk and where there isn't just a playbook, like do A, B, and C, and you will get the results. So um, that's how I think about performance science. You could loosely categorize it into three buckets, uh, that there are a bunch of ideas about strategy or uh, what are the right things to do, the things that give you the most impact versus things that are good, but just aren't um, as effective or potent. Then there's kind of, I would say, execution. So how do we do things effectively or efficiently? Uh, I think that's sort of where the productivity movement lives. You could kind of say that that's in that bucket, how to use time well. Um, And then the third big bucket I would say is about mindset or the psychology of performance. So how do we handle uh, facing risk or uncertainty? For example, Um, where does confidence and motivation come from? Like that kind of lives in that bucket. So um, Let me ask you, uh, yeah, Carla, of those three buckets, it's different for everybody, but generally speaking, where do entrepreneurs have the most challenging time of those three? Oh, it uh, it depends on how people got into entrepreneurship. And so I see people, so often you've got someone who is sort of visionary. That is a common path. Like they can see a future that other people can't see. And they're like, let's build a business around this. Um So I would say often um, they're more interested in the higher level strategy. And so sometimes that means like the execution stuff. You often actually see um, sometimes there's a visionary founder can be well partnered with someone who is more tactical or more operational, someone who translates that vision. And um, like I I have um, some clients who are in that arrangement. They might be one of the people or the other person, but together is actually where they're at their most powerful. Um, I would say that uh, most entrepreneurs have some kind of self-belief. And so I'm not saying they don't have challenges with mindset. When it gets really stressful and the stakes are high, everyone has some challenges. But I think to to leave a structure where someone else is creating the framework that you work through, um, you have to have a level of kind of self-belief in the idea and in yourself. So I would say um, 
it's not they can't have challenges, but often at a baseline, they have some of that because you you just wouldn't leave a structure if you didn't. In terms of um, so sometimes uh, you know the challenge comes from someone who is like a great operator, like they know their craft, and now they're like, great, I want to do it on my own. And what I would say is then sometimes there's a little more challenge in the strategy bucket because they know all the the elements of executing on their craft, but that direction or vision. So I would say it it can be different, um, mm-hmm. but that's that's more detail about like, oh, how do people end up in one of those two places? And um, the nice thing is we are adaptable. Like strategy, knowledge, or ability isn't something you're like born with or not. And and so part of the point of coaching is to say we can sort of see, oh, where are you really strong? Okay, we probably don't need to spend a lot of time there. Your biggest gains can come from, can we give you a little extra clarity in that strategy bucket? Um, and, and so that's often I'm kind of thinking about these things as I'm coaching because some people don't need X or Y and we really should focus on Z. So. so can somebody then who's a entrepreneur, visionary, co-founder, owner, whatever they are, business executive, can someone be a superstar in all three categories? Or is it, hey, if they're a superstar in, in one or two, then the third one inevitably is going to fall off a little bit? You're asking such a good question because you're you're pointing to this dilemma of we have to allocate our time and attention, even like what time or attention we spend learning something. And you're pointing to the innate constraint that we deal with in reality, which is we have 24 hours in the day. And sometimes people ask me, well, Carla, should I spend like all my time investing in strengths? Should I spend time investing in my weakness? And sometimes people argue about this uh, and have different schools of thought. My thought is that, uh, we innately will have some things we're stronger, but I think life is often multiplicative, which is to say that uh, it's often uh, sort of multiple channels or characteristics that combine to help us make progress or to create that momentum for us. And so I think we often can get the biggest ROI from some of our time by spending spending some time in that weakness area to bring it even like zero to one, like not even one to 10. If you've never sold something in your life, like it would be good to get at least a little bit of experience or comfort level thinking about how you might do that. Now, can you be a superstar in all of them? What I would say is that uh, I, I would frame it a little differently. Like sometimes what question we ask is what matters the most. And when we ask the question, can I be a superstar to all of them? I think it pushes us towards how do I be like 99th percentile? The challenge with 99th percentile is it often takes a lot more energy than the impact we get from it. And so I might frame it as to say, our goal should maybe be a little more, how can I have some good facility in each of these? Or maybe I'm kind of off the charts in two of them. And the third one, I'm going to just keep working on, but that, um, that the goal doesn't need to be, be a superstar in all of them because being 90th percentile or even 80th percentile, but being kind of balanced, if you like compound that over time, it's okay to be magna cum laude instead of summa cum laude in everything. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? (laughs) 
<laughs> I appreciate that that poke because I will tell you, sometimes I get asked like, Carla, okay, well, you think about performance. What's the thing you're working on? What are you learning right now? You know, and, or are you just done? Like you, you hung yeah. up your hat. You, you learned I knew it, all. it all. You're enlightened. Yes. You're the most enlightened no, person here. Yep. I am not. I am not. <laughs> and I will tell you that one of the things that medicine and that pathway totally pushes you towards 99th percentile thinking that every moment matters. And in some ways that's trying to prepare you for the fact that you will care for human lives and yeah, everyone matters <laughs> and you don't exactly know when something's going to take a turn. And so you sort of got to be on it all the time. The problem with that thinking, which now that I am out of that world is that it holds us back. Like it, it's the same as perfectionism is a huge roadblock for many of us, because honestly, to do something big and new, you have to be learning. And there's inevitably stuff that you can't like read a book about, or you can't ask someone else. And you actually have to try it. You have to run an experiment. So the problem, if you're like a 99th percentile thinker or a perfectionist is it really like roadblocks us in our minds to try something that we're not sure of the answer already. And, um, I would also say it slows us down. So for example, we might want to perfect some skill or thing before we move on to uh, the next level of what will grow our business or our visibility or whatever. But um, we're busy spending all this time, wasting all this time when we're, we were ready to move on to the next thing. We had enough of it figured out to move on months ago. Mm. And so it slows us down. And so just coming back to to me because I think it's easy to talk about other people, but it's uh, better when you're you know taking your own medicine. Mm -hmm. That uh, one of the biggest lessons for me going into business has been: this is not medicine. This is not academia. You are not going to be reviewed by a panel of your peers. You need to figure out what works. Real life and business is a little messier, and that that mindset will hold you back. If you're not willing to sort of like, you don't need to be magna cum laude at everything here. And right. I think that's an important thing to say, because there are a lot of uh, clients and people who have achieved highly in their careers. And part of it was up until that point, they were able to do that, like perfect work, you know, uh, really nailing every detail. And then they realized that to do the next big thing that's going to hold them back. Mm -hmm. So um, I definitely am working on practicing that. <laughs> that's great advice. That, that's fantastic advice. You mentioned momentum. And instead of just consistency, consistency, which is obviously important, momentum is something that is really hard to achieve. But once it's achieved, it adds, it almost adds fuel to the fire. It compound has a compounding effect and really allows entrepreneurs, business owners, to, to take off and go to that elite level. But let me ask you, how? What are the factors that go into being able to get the momentum? Great question. So the first thing I would say is it's helpful to, I think, define different areas where it's helpful to have that momentum. And um, I often think about momentum as like fuel. And... Um, and so I, one of the principles of performance I talk about is how do people like cultivate power for themselves or fuel? Like 
to get themselves get themselves going. And um, the three areas that I think of, and then we'll talk about how to build that momentum. One is sort of self momentum. It's like cultivating the power over the self, that discipline or that ability to get yourself to do stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Number one, um, I think the second one is most uh, big things that we're trying to do are not single player games in the sense of we may have a team that is scaling us. Like we're, we're not doing it all. We need the full team to have the company go. Um, or we need the visibility. We need the um, the social network to not we need to not just be performing at a high level, but we actually need the social network to appreciate and see our performance. And this is a piece of performance that often gets missed. Like we think if I'm just doing great work, people will see it. And um, there's a, a great book. The author's name was um, Burabazi, but it was called The Formula. And he he is a social scientist. He talks all about how when objective performance is really difficult to measure, like in athletics, it's pretty easy to know like who won Wimbledon or who won the Super Bowl. But um, in business, it's often uh, harder to assess one's work product or one's performance. And that's when the social um, perception of that performance plays a huge role in whether or not you're successful. So mm. that thinking about visibility and the other people involved is kind of a piece of that fuel, building momentum with that. Um, I think the third piece of momentum is can you build momentum in uh, acquiring resources and and or assets and by that I mean that could be skills you have talents it could be knowledge um, it could be money right it could be literally finances but those are things that kind of give us power and fuel so I bring it up because again a little bit of momentum in one area often, helps us beget momentum in another area. Like it kind of helps us say, oh, I'm feeling better. And that makes me more open-minded to trying this new thing, getting started on something that feels less certain. So um, that's why I like people to know that there's different channels and ways to think about your fuel because you could pick the one that feels easiest and then try and ride some of that to another area that's a little harder. But you asked a question that was, yeah, okay, but how do you build momentum? And I have a tool that I use. It's easy to remember. And I think it just speaks to um, like sort of how this works. And it's not rocket science, so we don't want to overcomplicate it. But it's the 90-90-90 tool. And it's just a way of remembering that 90% of people don't start. 90% of people who start don't keep going, even just doing the same thing. And then 90% of those people don't then take that thing they've been doing and say, well, maybe I could tweak that and make that a little bit better to make it a little more effective. And say, say that again, Carla. Yeah. Go through that. Well, it's, I like to think about numbers because it helps us think beyond our own experience. And, and so often when people, um, the act of building momentum is really to say, you have to start. And if and you can't start, ninety percent of people don't ever start. Correct? Is that what for you're many things? Yeah, right. many things that occur to them to do. Right, and and these can be even like simple things, um, okay. like eat more vegetables or I don't know, whatever. Um, and uh, then what happens is of the people who start. So then you like have ten. You have ten percent that will start this. Ten percent will start. Let's, let's yeah. Okay. okay. Sorry. Yeah. Ten percent okay. start, um, and then ten percent of those people keep going. 
So 1% now. We're at 1%. <laughs> we're at 1%. Right? We're and already 10... at 1%. After two steps, we're already at 1%. Yes, we're at 1%. And then and then 10% of those people take what they're doing and then start to think, I could improve that a little bit. Like, I, you know, either I could advance it and do more of it, or maybe it's, I'm going to change the nature of it a little bit to make it more, uh, more successful, more effective. And um, and again, this is for all sorts of trivial stuff. So my point is not to say that things are so, so dire. It's just to understand the nature of momentum and that momentum has three parts. And I think it's important to take it one point at a time, because if you try and jump to the third step of perfecting and iterating something before you've even started, that is such a, it's such a killer of step one. And so that's why I like to um, the point isn't that the numbers are precise, but it's to understand the nature of momentum and where we run into roadblocks. And I yeah. have found that we don't want to think about step two until we've done step one. And don't even think about totally questioning your methodology or improving it until you actually sort of get to try it for a little while and get used to the habit of like, I'm just doing this new thing. I'm just doing it. I'm not going to judge it too much. You can even set a timeline that's like, all right, in one month, that is when I will, if I've done it consistently, then I will ask myself the question, is there a better way to eat my vegetables, for example? <laughs> well, I think it's a powerful. So based on your 90, 90, 90 example, you're basically saying one out of a thousand people are going to go and do it to the way that you said they're going to start. They're going to find a way to uh, continue, find a way to improve one tenth of 1%. So I think it's. For all the things that we think of doing, which is a large, large number, this isn't just start a business. It's stuff as small as like, I should take out the garbage. <laughs> I mean, right. You know, so, right. but yeah, it could yeah. be anything. It could be like, anything. Like, yeah. uh, it is really easy to get stuck and um, to do the default. Like, time rolls on, change comes for us, whether we decide to steer or not. But um, there is a lot that holds us not changing in life that holds us in, in, in place. We're always, we're always seeking perfection where we need this, 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 and this in place before we could even start. Meanwhile, you don't, you've mentioned this throughout. That's been a common theme throughout our conversation. You don't need all of that stuff in, in place. You don't need summa cum laude. You don't even need magma cum laude. You don't, you just need the, the idea and the ability to have the courage to go. I think you said that so well, I have nothing to add. <laughs> well, you mentioned the power, you mentioned tools and the 909090 was one of your tools. Now, is that one of those four powerful tools that you talk about mm -hmm. in helping elite performers? If it is, give us the other three. If it's not, give us all four. Awesome. Okay. It's um it's related to cultivate power, which is one of those tools. This idea of like, how do you start to build momentum? How and what are the areas that matter? potentially to build some momentum in, how to think about that. Um, the other two big um, areas, like principles of performance science, that as I looked at those buckets, like strategy, execution, and mindset, the other two principles that relate to the other two buckets, so cultivate power really relates to execution. How do you get going, like doing something? Um, the other two buckets are strategy and mindset. And the principle that relates back to strategy is brutal focus. And you said something really important in what you said before when you said, nah, you don't need mind to come out. You need an idea and you need to get going on it. And to me, when I say idea, often what you need is some clarity. 
And this idea of asking yourself, what do I want? Like, what is it I want to have happen? The results, and can I make it as clear as possible? So for example, I want my business to be successful. Like, it's a great thought. Most of us want it, but also it doesn't really direct us. And that's why brutal focus is helpful. I call it brutal because it's kind of painful. It's much more focused than many of us are in most of our lives. So it's really saying, there's lots of things I might want, and the internet makes me want even more. Social media (laughs) makes me want even more. But what do I really want to have happen? Can I be sort of specific about it? And then can I ask myself the question, what are the most important drivers towards that? Not all the stuff everyone else is doing. Uh, What really, when it comes down to it, I mean, you know, to quote Tim Ferriss, it's like, if I had literally four hours to work on this, what would I do? Okay. What if I had one day a week to work on this? Like how focused would I need to be with those inputs? And then try and figure out what those things are. And it's okay if you don't know them, but it's worth working towards because when you start to do that, that is when you can start to direct your time towards things that give you more impact. And it turns out that feels really good when we see um, things manifesting from the effort we put in. And when we run around trying to do all the things that we think might be important or like other people are doing, and we trying to do, we're trying to do all of them. um, What happens is we don't see a lot of results we rapidly feel like we're working so hard and not seeing an outcome. And that is the nature of burnout. Mm. It's not working hard. It's actually um, doing a lot of stuff and not seeing the ROI of the energy invested. And yeah, that's perfect. That's perfectly said. Uh, So we're we're getting close to finishing up FAXA executive coaching, T-H-A-X-A. What does that mean? Where did you come up with the name? So it means it's related to the word for a task in Latin. And the reason I picked it was because to me, all of the big stuff there is that one could do in life is really a series of um, smaller tasks, things that are very approachable, that are not hard, uh, that you need to stack or compound on each other. And that's totally how I think about things. I try to help my clients think in that way and, um, just you know, going to that third bucket mindset, it's really helpful when we start to say, ah, yeah, the accomplishment that I'm going for could be really challenging and it will be the sum of a lot of effort. And yet the pieces of that effort could even be fun, could be enjoyable, um, or at the very least, aren't that hard on their own. And, um, and so I think to me, it just represents kind of long arc thinking and also uh, that Again, things can be approachable. We can build that stack of tasks for ourselves. Beautiful. Thaxa.com. We'll link it in the show notes. Click uh, if you want to learn more about Carla and her company. Uh, let me give you finish it with this. Uh, let's go back to your 33-year-old self. Put on your sales hat again. For whoever's listened to this, who are the type of people that may be an ideal client for you? Who are they? What do they look like? What is their business like? Are you... A, a certain, do you specialize in a certain area? You know, give us a little bit of, of your final thoughts on, on who the type of client is that you like to work with. Absolutely. So, um, I really like to work with people who are, um, 
thinking thinking bigger for themselves. They have a goal and a place where they want to go. And um, generally, they're in a position where they have the autonomy and the responsibility to be carrying that out. So, um, you know, it's one of those things where, ah, it is on me to kind of make this goal happen. And um, they are people who are looking to think about their performance in um, a level beyond just, I got to work harder, right? They've reached that point where they're like, ah, that was really, I could do that when I was in my twenties. There was where, you know, sweat, sweat equity was what we all had. We didn't have a lot of brains maybe, but like we knew how to work (laughs) hard. Um, You know, you're kind of past that point and you're looking for that next level of tools that are really orthogonal to just work harder, just work more hours. And um, so I think that is often, uh, it's not within a particular industry. I work across industries and because what I bring is this lens of performance and I work together with clients to help them increase their clarity and decrease their friction. And they have to go like do the work. But what I have noticed is that if you can increase clarity and decrease the friction, that is where momentum comes from. Mm. Well said, powerful stuff. Uh, really appreciate it, Carla. This has been a fascinating conversation, very informative, and wishing you continued success. Thank you so much, Nate. It was really great to chat with you.